Well, kia ora, everyone, and welcome into News Over the Horizon. I'm Bernard Hickey from the Kaka, and I'm in Wellington in the Parliamentary Press Gallery, and in Auckland we have... Peter Bale in the stuff offices. Yeah, um, Peter and I are um, old mates and colleagues from our days at Reuters. Foreign correspondents, I suppose, in various different places. Peter was also managing foreign correspondents and has since um, managed newsrooms all over the world. And we have a great interest in the the events of the world, the news that's coming at us over the horizon, the things that matter from over the, the waters, even though we're not allowed to go there much anymore. There's still a, an intense interest in what's going on in the world of geopolitics and all sorts of things. And today, Peter, we wanted to start off with this brewing story, in fact, a revival of a story about whether or not COVID-19 came out of a lab or came out of nature from some low-flying bat or, or pangolin. Yeah, well, Tell us what's going on here. Well, it's a really interesting set of stories, and I think it's very important that we don't get sucked into a conspiracy on this, because even if it did come from a, from a lab in this case, it may well still have been what scientists called uh, zoonotic, which is that it comes, its origin is from an animal. That's certainly been the case with other SARS-related viruses in the past, and there's, there's, there's no reason why that, why that wouldn't be the case this time. The, the closest identified equivalent of the virus has been in the horseshoe bat, which, which exists in China. And the idea is, or the belief is, but we, it isn't proven at all, the vector is not proven yet, whether that is a bat virus that got to humans through the pangolin. Now, the pangolin is the most traded endangered species in the world and is apparently delicious. And its, <laughs> little, sca- and its little scales are apparently aphrodisiac, or allegedly. So, you know, they, 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 people do eat pangolins, and that has often been described as the potential pathway, but it certainly isn't proven. What is also known is that the, I think, two significant uh, research labs in Wuhan, where the, where the virus was detected first, were working on these kinds of viruses and on you know the potential of these viruses to spread and it's also known now that at least three people from one of these one of these labs were treated ahead of time ahead of when we know the pandemic existed in Wuhan for for some symptoms or other we just don't know and of course we also know that the WHO sent in a team there and it really just didn't get enough evidence now Joe Biden has asked the intelligence services to do another investigation and report back to him whether it's whether the lab the lab theory could have could have happened. And today, Anthony Fauci, the, the head of infectious diseases in the United States, has done the same and said we really need to know more from China. In fact, he's, he's issued a very sort of serious but firm call to China to be more open about this. Yeah, this is uh, really fascinating in that this idea of the the lab escape theory sort of cropped up right at the start of the outbreak mm. and was sort of poo-pooed as a bit out there and it sort of went dead for a while. But in that time, Australia, for example, called on the World Health Organization to have a full-on inquiry into the the origin of COVID-19 and got into a lot of trouble with China, who said, get on out of our affairs, mate. This is this is our business. And this is the problem here, isn't it, with this story, that the, the Chinese haven't been completely upfront. And we know, for example, that when it did break out in Wuhan, there were a couple of weeks when the Chinese government weren't either really aware of the problem going on in Wuhan or when they found out about it, tried to shut the story down. 
and yeah. haven't been completely upfront, really, even with the WHO investigators that have gone in there. And now Joe Biden is saying, okay, no one's quite sure what's going on here, but our intelligence agencies, you've got 90 days to come up with more definitive evidence one way or the other. Do you think this is uh, potentially going to cause grief, further grief in the relationship between China and, and um, the rest of the world if, you know, America comes out with more evidence and accuses China of not only letting this disastrous disease out into the wild, but then trying to cover it up? Yeah, well, I think, I think it, is, it, it does sort of depend on how Joe Biden approaches this. I suspect that the US security services will give a probability and I suspect it will be something like a 60-40 a probability between zoonotic and, and the lab theory. I, I doubt very much that they have additional information to really be sure about this. The, the Fauci request to the Chinese is somewhat more, somewhat less confrontational in a way. And, and frankly, I think it's, more impor- it's quite important to engage with China in a, com- in a less confrontational way on this. I mean, the head of the, head of the World Health Organization has already said that he didn't think that the inquiry had got quite far enough. And, and so I think it's got to be done intelligently and it's got to be done, I mean, the, the reason it was discounted at the start, to some extent, was because it came out of the mouth of Donald Trump and was used very much as part of his whole China flu pitch. Mm. And, uh, you know, so he had less credibility, but it is important to know. I mean, the, it, the, there have been some very good studies in The Lancet and in Nature about the number of lab leaks that there have been over, you know, from all kinds of places of all kinds of things. You know, these are, these are extremely dangerous substances. And it is also true that, you know, China, with, as we'll discuss in a, in a little bit, you know, China is not known for its transparency. Although, of course, it is known for very effectively, it would appear, stamping out the virus in a way that the United States and other countries have not. Yeah, that's the irony here is that China, which, you know, is the, seems to have been the source, whether accidentally or negligently, you're right, dealt with it very effectively once they knew it was a problem. And and also it's got a China should be given some credit. Their scientists were very active once they were allowed in putting the entire genome up onto the internet essentially, which was then used by the the vaccine makers incredibly effectively to come up with these vaccines that we now have. So absolutely Bernard. And I think you know when we get, when we go into some other topics about China, I mean my my view, other than the possibly the very last one we discuss, which will be about Tiananmen Square, is that we need to engage with China. I think I, I just don't think isolating China is a is an intelligent strategy for anybody. The the economic dependencies are too huge, and although it sounds a bit kind of 1993 and Bill Clintonish, I I have to believe that engaging with China is the right way to go ultimately. Yeah, but, but that's but not the... with a, but with a big stick yeah. in our hand. But that's, that's not the direction we, we, we got this week from Joe Biden, aside from the request for an inquiry into the origin of COVID-19. He also announced overnight a, a new ban on American investors in various Chinese companies, very large international companies, 59 companies, including mm-hmm. the likes of Huawei, which we're very familiar with in New Zealand, but also uh, SMIC, which is one of the world's biggest uh, computer chip manufacturers, China Telecom, China Mobile, all very large Chinese companies, which the Americans allege are involved in the Chinese military industrial complex, if you like, which is, has been, they allege, uh, taking technology, using it in various military uh, operations, potentially involved in cyber attacks. This is America 
tightening and and building up that that wall, if you like, between the American yeah. sphere and the Chinese sphere. Yeah, it's really interesting. And of course, I, I think I shared with you also, Bernard, there was another story in the Financial Times just a couple of days ago about the finance industry in particular from internationally wanting to invest more in China, both through equities and also to tap into wealth in China. So I think we're going to get a real conflict between the, the interests of business and the interests of politicians who are wanting to make some points with Xi Jinping about encroachment of China into other places like Taiwan and, as you say, potential and I think really not very well argued moves by companies like Huawei. I, I am not convinced personally by the scare stories about Huawei. I think they have more to do with some of the US inadequacy about developing its own 5G networks. You know, the, the US, if you remember, you know, it had, it, it's essentially give, essentially gave up on the kinds of net, networks that Nokia, Ericsson and uh, Huawei are now capable of building. So I think there's a, lot, there's a lot of that kind of legacy there, rather yeah. than necessarily legitimate, legitimate security concerns. The problem for China, though, is that over the last decade, particularly under President Xi Jinping, it has begun you know, flexing its geopolitical muscles. Its wolf warrior diplomats have appeared fairly insensitive and bullying in the way that they've approached many countries. The Belt and Road Initiative that China has used to export its building materials, apart from anything else, and some of its labour to improve connections between China and Europe and China and the rest of the world, building ports, motorways, optic fibre connections and the like. And it's been used as a, a tool for trade diplomacy, capital diplomacy, and unfortunately, uh, essentially debt diplomacy. We've all yeah, heard but we of it. also have to ask: Would it would it even exist if if Trump hadn't pulled out of the um, Trans-Pacific Partnership? Well, you know, that, that right. might have neutralised it. So we can't. You know, there's there's complicity in this. And of course, also if you look at what, you know, we may not like it, but if you look at what China is doing in Africa, you know, there are countries in Africa and, and Southeast Asia that are getting 5G networks far faster than they would have if they were if they were relying on other people. So, you know, yes, yes, there are strategic problems with Belt and Road. And I think also this week we saw, for example, the Americans are very concerned about a new a new Chinese Cambodian base or Chinese access to a Cambodian base in in Southeast Asia. So, you know, there, there are strategic elements of this. But Bernard, I was also noticing that, you know, lovely, cuddly Winnie the Pooh, Xi Jinping, <laughs> Said that said this week that what he was re what the Chinese Communist Party quotes really strives for is the happiness of the Chinese people. So on the on the thirtieth anniversary of, of of Tiananmen Square, that's really nice to know. Yes, and that is an anniversary which you won't hear about in China, and it's it's a fascinating thing to see a collective national memory of an extraordinary event in a nation's history being scrubbed clean from all of the history books and the internet and the minds of people. I've experienced quite an unusual thing. Even in my world of propaganda and information a year or so ago, when I heard about an incident at a factory in the South Island, a dairy factory in the South Island that was owned by um, a Chinese investment company mm -hmm. where about half the workers were imported from China. So these were, these were dairy technology engineers, lab technicians, you know, people with lots of skill who often had secondary educations who'd come to New Zealand and were getting on really well with the local New Zealand workers. They were a real team. But one day, this was about two years ago, June the 4th, the anniversary of the Tiananmen Square events, 
the local worker asked the Chinese-born worker, you know, what he was going to do to remember this day. Mm. Hadn't really understood that this was an event that often a lot of people from China don't know about. And, and if they do, they're very careful about talking about it. And so the New Zealand um, worker, who is quite well-versed in international affairs, uh, actually started to lay out and showed the Chinese worker a Wikipedia page and all of the history. Mm. And, and the Chinese worker was so shocked and angry that, that this propaganda was being pushed at him by the New Zealand worker, he complained to his boss and it went all the way back to Beijing. And a few days later, the New Zealand worker was essentially hauled over the coals and told not to raise this matter with Chinese-born workers again. Yeah, because it's, it's unbelievably sensitive. You know, mm. I think it is extremely... Just, I, I think I said 30th, it's the 32nd anniversary. And, of course, what that means, I, just to be clear also, I've worked in Beijing for the Chinese uh, as a consultant at one point for CGTN, just to be trans- totally transparent about this. And you do not talk about Tiananmen mm. Square there at all. You do not talk about the date. You do not use anything that is coded around it. You know, they, they call it the three T's, actually, T- T- Tiananmen, Tibet, and, Christ, what's the third T? Taiwan. Ah. You do not discuss the three T's. But I think that one of, the, one of the issues with this, Bernard, is that given that it's 32 years old, and China is, of course, under the party, extremely effective at suppressing this, so young people in China simply do not know about Tiananmen Square. And it's, it's a real it's, issue. It's not... Yeah, they are not conscious of it. No, and it's a real issue for a lot of the universities and even the English language schools here in New Zealand and Australia and America, Canada and Britain, where you have students coming here, you know, doing degrees, postgraduate level degrees and, and study, and suddenly they bump into this. And it is a real problem. And to the point where in, up until you know a year or two ago, many of the universities in Australia and New Zealand at least were complicit in scrubbing this piece of history from their own lessons and course materials so that it didn't cause trouble, not only with the authorities in China who were you know, giving the, the official approval to people looking to uh, travel and mm. study overseas, but also the students themselves inside Australia and New Zealand who were very aggressive on, yes. uh, on social media in you know, defending and... and projecting the the rightness and the goodness of the Chinese project. And it really just, it's one of those issues which keeps coming up again and again in relations as it between, should. yeah. As it, as it should. I mean, I think it's just one, one of the things about this, Bernard, we need to remember, because we're all old too, kind of old, <laughs> Let, let's remember why this happened. You know, this was, this was a Chinese reaction by ordinary Chinese people, but particularly students, to the 1989 revolutions in Eastern Europe, to Gorbachev's perestroika and openness. And the Chinese Communist Party absolutely did not, well, most of them, apart from, apart from Hu Yaobang, I recall at the time, who, who lost his post very shortly afterwards, there were very, you know, they did not want this contamination as they saw it from the collapse of other communist regimes in Eastern Europe to spread to Beijing. And they cracked down very firmly. The one person who really, if you recall, identified this unbelievably strongly and in fact cried while presenting to, to, to the Australian Parliament about this was the, the then Prime Minister, Bob Hawke. Mm-hmm. And I was just reading a piece in the ABC from Australia where he described what had happened, which was Chinese soldiers rushing into Tiananmen Square, firing their guns indiscriminately, running over civilians with tanks, squashing bodies into pulp, 
and incinerating the remains with flamethrowers. Now, we've actually seen very few, there are very few pictures that you see generally circulated now about Tiananmen, and of course there is the incredibly famous tank man picture of the single person standing in front and stopping a, a tank going into Tiananmen Square. But the ABC in particular, a guy called Max Utrecht, who was a very, very good correspondent based there at the time, if you look for his work uh, on the ABC site, th there are extraordinary pictures of bodies strewn right across Tiananmen Square, which give you a sense of the scale of the killing that occurred there and that went on you know, over a period of days. And it really was essentially you know, heavily tracked military vehicles ri riding over the, uh, over the encampments of students, of peaceful students in Tiananmen Square. Yeah, and it's it's one of those issues that just keeps coming back. Just today, for example, in Hong Kong, the uh, leader of one of the pro-democracy movements was in prison today after mm -hmm. he said on social media that he was going somewhere to commemorate the June 4th events. And Hong Kong, this will be the first year under the much stricter controls from Beijing on the media and on the various pro-democracy groups in Hong yeah. Kong. Yeah, well, you'll remember there was the, there was the extraordinary, you know, Hong Kong has generally often had this extraordinary sort of white goddess of democracy, a statue that is, that is pictured on the, you know, has been pictured in Hong Kong very often or been in Hong Kong very often. So people have been really brave in Hong Kong to do this every year for the last, you know, 30, more than 30 years. And this will be the first time that it's been squashed. So moving on now, COVID. Is yeah, but I'm sorry, I went, I went, I, I went straight to the end rather than the beginning. So please, yeah. please, no, let's, let's address the things we said we would. Sorry. Yeah, no, this is great because we've we've gone on from COVID, which you know is a key part of that relationship between China and the rest of the world. But COVID, of course, is still raging in the world, and everyone's racing as fast as they can to get vaccinated. Some great numbers out today. The FTs vaccination tracker, which is opened um, to the public, shows that New Zealand, I mean, we, we pat ourselves on the back for doing really well with COVID-19, but New Zealand and Australia are both now falling behind the rest of the world in terms of vaccination. That's not just because, you know, we've been at the bottom, back of the queue to receive the vaccines because we haven't had the same sort of pandemic raging through and, you know, killing thousands and putting even more hundreds of thousands into hospital. But because I think it's, it's worth questioning the methodology and the strategies that we've used to get vaccinated. New Zealand, for example, has chosen just a one vaccine strategy so far with Pfizer, mm -hmm. and we've basically almost run out of the doses that we, we initially had, and now we're waiting for confirmation of a big new drop of, of vaccines in late uh, June, early July at this point. And Australia decided to put its eggs mostly into the AstraZeneca basket, in part because it has huge laboratories in Melbourne which were able to get the right to manufacture the mm. vaccine in Australia. And now, I mean, there's an intense pressure in Australia, of course, with the big extended lockdown in Melbourne this week to get their vaccination rates up. And it's just worth having a look at the charts on this. New Zealand is somewhere between the Palestinian territories and Lebanon in terms of its vaccination rates. And that's amazing. The Palestinian territories over the last three or four months have been through a war and yeah, their vaccination right. rates are higher than ours. Amazing. That's right. So we have 11.4 vaccinations per 100 people and 3.9% of the New Zealand population immunised. Now, the government has sort of marked its own homework a little bit on this. And I, you know, I do understand... Well, I think it's important that we explain some of this. And personally, I think the decision to go singly for Pfizer was actually a really interesting and very sensible call because it, it 
it avoids that whole vaccine choice question. New Zealand has, I believe, ordered some, some AstraZeneca as well, but I think that's going to be used in donations to the Pacific. But the, the good thing about going for a single vaccine is that no one has any need to worry about which one they're getting. We're all getting the same one. And in a country where you have potentially quite high anti-vax or, or vaccine hesitancy, and you've got some, some interesting you know, racial divides around conspiracy theories and, and questions over the, over the government, I think there is an argument, particularly since the government has made a priority of initially vac- vaccinating people in South Auckland near the airport, near the main airport, and also focusing to some extent on Maori and Pacifica communities that are particularly vulnerable to COVID because of other comorbidities. But I, I worry that we're going to, we, that there's the potential, particularly with Melbourne and the, the outbreak in Melbourne, that we end up in a Taiwan situation where we get kind of caught out having had a remarkable period of control over the last 18 months with only 26 deaths and, and, and some very relatively short lockdowns that we are not moving ahead as fast as we could on on. On vaccination. I also worry, although Ashley, Ashley Bloomfield, the Director General of Health, was speaking about this yesterday, I'm not sure that the government has handled the explanation and the elaboration and the communication about the vaccine rollout as well as it has everything else. And I, I'm perplexed as to why that is. And I'm not also convinced that the media is doing quite the same stellar job that it did during about lockdowns. I wonder what you think yeah, about that. Yeah, I think, I think you're, you're right. There's a sense of exhaustion in part and complacency and a desperate mm-hmm. attempt to, to just get on with our lives and not have to worry about it. But, of course, we, we do and we should. And it's interesting, when you look at the, the sign-in rates for the COVID tracker, they pretty closely <laughs> follow the mm. outbreaks. So when people are, have it right in their faces that there's an outbreak going on, suddenly they start... Uh, uh, signing in with the QR codes, which of course is too late. I mean, you really need to be doing it all the time. And we have stepped, we haven't taken the extreme steps that others have of, for example, Australia has actually banned their own people from leaving Australia. That was actually upheld by a court this week. New Zealand also hasn't gone to the extent of making it compulsory for people to sign in with QR codes, even into, you know, public uh, uh, spaces that are controlled by the government, such as um, hospitals and schools and and the like. Yeah, well, personally, I think that's been appropriate, Bernard, until now, possibly. But I just, I feel that that's been the right thing to do because you've had relatively very high levels of public complicity, public participation and public endorsement of what the Prime Minister and the and the Director General of Health have done. And I just feel that if you start to penalise people too much or turn it into a punishment or you turn it into a sort of requirement, that you lose that goodwill. You know, it may be time to do that, certainly in circumstances. As you know, they've stopped people who haven't had a, a vaccine from working in the on the borders, for example, or in, in, in the quarantine hotels. But I think that's, that's a very sensible move. Yeah, and the government is very sensitive about being accused of being a nanny state in, in this. And it does seem to have worked when you look at the polls for what New Zealand's vaccine hesitancy rate is. It has dropped uh, in the last three or four months. So they're doing regular surveys now, and currently the current rate of approval, if you like, for people saying, yes, I'll take the vaccine, is up around the 75 76% mm. mark, which is higher than most countries. Because this issue of getting to herd immunity, which, you know, depending on who you talk to, is somewhere around the 80% mark, 
Getting to herd immunity is going to be the problem. Already you're seeing this in America, for example, where they are now at 50% vaccinated. But getting that final 50% or even the final 30% is going to be very difficult. You're seeing all sorts of interesting tactics, lotteries, free plane tickets, airline points, all sorts of things being offered. And guns. I I saw one state the other day talking talking about giving people guns. But I think one of the the problems here, Bernard, is one of the things to think about when we talk about herd immunity and we mean it not in the sen- not in the english sense of letting the disease as was discussed of effectively letting the disease spread through the population in the hope that sufficient percentages of the population that get 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 immunity by having been exposed to covid because we still don't know how long that lasts but the in this case we're talking about herd immunity generated by a high level of vaccination which then starts to slow the vaccine down on its tracks it's also very important to remember that that percentage is of the total population including children so you know, at some point we're going to. I don't think Pfizer has been approved in New, in New Zealand for children yet, but at some point we're going to have to look at that, and that's of course a very big issue in the UK now with schools and things oh, opening, yeah. uh, like, and the and the and the. Sorry, forgive me, Bernard, but the the Indian vari- the variation first found in India uh, is now the dominant the dominant version in India, in, in in the UK, and I think there were four thousand cases today in the UK reported. But on the good side, that FT. The FT coronavirus vaccine tracker says that more, more than 2 billion people have now been vaccinated worldwide. So there is some good news in this podcast as well. Yeah, yeah. And, and also the Pfizer vaccine, which we're relying on, has been one of those which seems to have had the fewest side effects. Although out of Israel this week, we got the, one of the first studies and Israel was one of the first. In fact, um, it sacrificed its uh, privacy and data to Pfizer just mm. to make sure it got those vaccines first. And it is the most vaccinated of the, of the Pfizer countries, if you like. Came out with a study this week showing a very small number, 255 out of 5 million people, 255 young men had issues with myocarditis. That meant they had to spend some time in hospital. 95% of those cases were mild. And when you do a percentage on it, it's well less than, Uh, 0.006%. So we're talking about a tiny, tiny number of people. But it is um, positive that the Pfizer vaccine, which seems to be the gold standard of all of those, is the one that we're going to get. We just desperately need confirmation that a big uh, couple of plane loads is coming in July to get us cracking on that, that, that main part of the rollout. Yes, I tried to do a walk-in myself at a, at a clinic in Auckland because various friends of mine had told me that they'd just turned up and gotten it. Uh, and I was told very firmly that I was not 66 oh. years and therefore was, um, was not, not... You certainly eligible. don't look at Peter, no. Thanks. Yeah, yeah no, I'm nowhere near 66, <laughs> as, you, as you know. Just sticking on the, on the Israel situation, mm. Netanyahu, Benjamin Netanyahu Bibi, who seems to have you know, been a permanent <laughs> Prime Minister of Israel and, and one of those politicians with 73 lives, maybe his time is up, maybe. Tell us what's going on there. Yeah, well, you know, there's an extraordinary, after that 11-day conflict with Hamas and Gaza, there's been the most extraordinary creation of, uh, of a really remarkable coalition between the right, a, some, a, a sort of secular centrist party, and possibly most remarkably, and for the first time, in Israel, an Arab-Israeli party called the United Arab List Party. Now, it has had a number of concessions, including about villages in the Negev Desert and the treatment of Israeli Bedouin Arabs, which has been controversial, and some other economic uh, measures to improve the lot of Israeli Arabs, which I think are 21% of the population, if I remember correctly. Now, it is a really weird and potentially volatile coalition. 
if it is if it is confirmed, and that is currently being held up by the Speaker of the House, who's a member of um, Netanyahu's the Kud Party, so it could take a couple of days, it will have only one a majority of only one in the Knesset. So. Wow. It's all to play for, but I think one of the, and of course the, the, the main thing that's at stake here, or if it, sorry, the main thing that's bringing this coalition together is an absolute loathing of Benjamin Netanyahu, <laughs> who is, has been invited, indicted for corruption, he's been there for 15 years, he is the most extraordinary survivor and the most extraordinary sort of player for time. I, I didn't say this explicitly, but it, you know, he, he is... He effectively used that that last 11-day conflict with Hamas as part of his election campaign after the fourth inconclusive election. But also, it seemed to me interesting that one of Iran's biggest naval ships caught fire and sank oh, in yeah. the in the in the Arabian Gulf last week. So, kind of interesting. You know, sorry, the other day. Just, and I want to be clear. I'm not saying that it was the Israelis, but it just, you know, in in a place where there are no coincidences, and and he had said that he was prepared to sacrifice to some extent the U.S. alliance if it was if it meant protecting Israel from an existential Iranian risk. You know, I just. He, he he could pull out anything in the next couple of days. Do you think um, his he, he really threw his lot in with the Trump brigade and Jared Kushner in particular? With Trump and Kushner gone, do you think some of his sway with America and his, his being on the right side of history or the wrong side of history um, may be the end of him. Right? He is a he is a Houdini Houdini like character, and you know he has survived kind of worse worse than this in some extent. Except that he he has has been indicted on on multiple corruption charges, and he will now have to face those. Although there is also you know, and there's a new Israeli president just been appointed this 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 week as well. So it it, it might he might be on his last legs, but he is the kind of person who comes out fighting, and he has said that this you know this strange coalition is. A travesty and a left-wing conspiracy, and you know, of course, it involves his former allies and for, and former partners in government, a guy called Naftali Bennett, who is a, uh, a very wealthy uh, businessman, but he's also an extreme right supporter of of settlements. So, the the, th- the thing that I wonder about this, and I and I, I'm not enough of an expert to know yet, but by any means, but sometimes it takes uh, hardliners such as Bennett in something like a coalition as weird as this to actually pull out some surprises and have the credibility to make big actions. I think, you know, in 2003, I think it was, Ariel Sharon pulled Israel out of Gaza. Mm. You know, sometimes it takes the hard, hard right or the, hard, you know, the, the, the right wingers or the people with previous military experience to make the big steps that are necessary to, to get peace at some stage. Yeah. And, I mean, not that they're exa- at all the same things, but an interesting case was... In the late 1990s, it was the national government which was most effective at starting the Treaty of Waitangi settlement processes and and managed to pull a whole bunch of people in New Zealand who would have been very sceptical about that along with them, simply because they were from a place that that group um, were supportive of. So you're right, often it's it's the extreme ends of the spectrum who are able to reach across to the middle and make something That's right. stick. Yeah, and, and the one I think of in that context is, apart from Sharon, is John Major, who initiated talks with the IRA that eventually became the Good Friday Agreement. And of course, John Major was the Prime Minister of the Conservative and, and Unionist Party. It took somebody running a, you know, who, who's... Whose party is whose party's foundation, in a sense, is is includes Northern Ireland or includes the principle that Northern Ireland is part of the UK, 
it took him to initiate it and, of course, the Labour, Labour government under Tony Blair to finally gain the Good Friday Agreement. Just uh, finally, I'm talking about politicians who love publicity and, and never, say, die. Facebook has made some decisions about how to judge politicians' speech. Now they're, they're not special people. Yeah, well, I, funnily enough, I, I, I do some work for Facebook and I was, I was among the many, many, many people from various organisations that contributed to their discussions about how to treat political speech. And I agree with the decision they ultimately came to in the past, which was that you cannot, or Facebook cannot really limit what people like Rodrigo Duterte or Trump or anybody else, Jacinda Ardern even, says on the platform. And I said that because politicians... A, in many cases, can speak inside parliaments where they are protected from uh, libel or defamation laws. But also, you need to know what politicians are really saying. And so I think that there is a, there is a case for elected politicians or dictators to, be, to have slightly more latitude to say extraordinary things than your average person. However, since the Facebook oversight board's deci- or recommendation that, about, about the, the, the Trump ban be upheld but that he not be singled out. They, that it looks like they're shifting towards treating politicians like any other human. Yeah, that's a fascinating one because Trump's Twitter feed was like a, a straight, unfiltered feed of his brain. And in many ways, you'd hear about what he was about to do first <laughs> through that Twitter feed. But also you get an insight into the complete mess that his brain was that you, know, you, you really understood the problems of Trump as a leader by simply looking at his Twitter feed. So yeah, I, no, he, I, kept, he kept nothing hidden, but of course, just to be clear, you are talking about his Twitter feed, but, but we're talking about Facebook. But yes, you're, you're absolutely right, that he was not hiding anything at any time, really. Yeah, and yeah. Facebook appeared this week before a select committee in New Zealand and was grilled pretty, in a pretty tough way about its treatment of particularly hate speech, and there remains some some fairly grumpy people around the issue of live streaming on Facebook, and and Facebook put put forward its its point that it has taken down a lot of accounts in the last couple of years and is continuing to increase its um, resources and spending on getting rid of some of the, the hate speech, but it's not going to go away, this issue, and uh, the, the likes of these platforms such as um, Facebook and, and Google will continue to have this huge impact yeah, well, in our I, lives. Yeah, I, I think you, you and I have a slightly different view on this, and in my opinion, Facebook is already too big to regulate. It's beyond regulation. It's a monster that has gotten out of control, but I don't think it's actually feasible to bring it into control. I don't have a good answer for how to control it. There was a very good piece that I circulated in my newsletter this week in the MIT Technology Review. It was a couple of months old, actually, but it was it was a piece about the head of the team that had that had driven engagement, particularly around misinformation, and it was absolutely clear given their proximity to Mark Zuckerberg, that it was all about engagement. While they said they wanted to contain misinformation, the algorithm was entirely kind of dependent or or drove engagement with controversial material. So it's extremely difficult, I think, to turn off this tap once you've turned it on. And that power is something that politicians respect. You only have to look at how... Our Prime Minister um, is a very effective user of Facebook and Instagram to uh, make sure her message is unfiltered to not just New Zealand voters, but to the world. She has one of the most uh, popular 
global, you know, Facebook and Instagram um, feeds, and it's it's not going to go away uh, quickly. And I think, though, and I do take a, a bit more, a bit less of a of a free, freedom rules approach on this. Not that I I love the way that China has created a a its own firewall and mm. has attempted to regulate its own internet, let alone not allow the rest of the world's internet into China. But it is possible, for example, to limit some of the things that are done. And if you only look across the Tasman at Australia, this week we had confirmation that Google and Facebook, it looks like, are contributing upwards of $200 million to the news organisations in Australia. Now, I know that that was... Um, largely because Rupert Murdoch's um, News Corporation applied pressure to the Australian government to work Mm. on its behalf to essentially strong-arm Facebook and Google into giving it more money. But, you know, when you can get the power of a government and a regulator and an organisation or a government able to restrict the activities of a a large international company, sometimes you you get stuff done. We'll see, though, how long that lasts. I've got my hopes on the European Union to apply some pressure. Yeah, well, the European Union, as you know, has already been very effective with GDPR, the the agreement on on data protection, which even Facebook has essentially adopted as a global rule. Yeah, I just, I, I think the trouble is, to some extent, Bernard, as we've discussed before, the Silicon Valley bros, many of whom I've, I've, I've worked with in the past, believe that good information will drive out bad information and, then, and that the answer to, 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 to unpleasant conversation is to have more conversation. And I, I'm afraid that human nature and also the manipulation of that kind of soft underbelly by places like Russia and China, you know, it, it's a bit of a dream. It's a bit of a sort of Anne Randian dream, in fact. Yeah, and it's very easy for um, Facebook and Google and Amazon and Apple and the rest to play countries off against each other to keep keep the the regulators at bay. Hey, we're hitting the forty minute mark. I just wanted to yeah. ask our, our our listeners and and watchers if they had any questions. We're we're more than happy to to finish up here. But if you didn't have any questions, yes, we have Jonathan there. Let me just um, push a button. How are Jonathan, you? Good, good, good. How are you guys? Great, thank you. That's good. Thank you for the conversations and for all the content you put out. I just saw the tweet that you tweeted today, Bernard, about uh, New Zealand's house price inflation being second in second place uh, globally. And I was just curious what you thought the reasons were behind that compared to other countries like Australia, perhaps. Yeah, (laughs) it's sort of a scary thing to watch, isn't it? We were just behind Turkey, and Turkey has an inflation rate generally of 17%, and it goes through central bank governors once every two or three weeks, and is run by a dictator. So there's some other things going on in, in Turkey, but we didn't quite get number one. The reason for the incredible house price growth in New Zealand is largely in the last year, the uh, sharp drop in interest rates and the Reserve Bank's decision to stimulate the housing market to rescue the economy because it's now the largest tool that the Reserve Bank has to stimulate the economy. You make the housing market wealthier and of course the 60% of the population who own houses feel wealthier and they spend money. For many small businesses, the value of your house is effectively the equity underneath your small business so you're more likely to keep people in work. And with the Reserve Bank promising to print 
$100 billion to ensure that the housing market stayed alive. Um, it stayed alive all right and <laughs> it really got going. The Reserve Bank's decision uh, just after the um, advent of COVID to remove the restrictions on uh, high um, LVR lending, or low deposit lending, particularly to landlords, completely removed. That unleashed a torrent of new credit into the housing market and effectively pushed up prices 30% inside three or four months. Underlying all that is has been a period of very fast population growth but very slow housing supply growth that even though we've had record numbers of housing consents in the last year, over 44,000, it's still about half the building rate that we had during the 50s, 60s and 70s when the government saw its role as helping New Zealanders, a young country, build family homes for new families, particularly the, the families of the veterans who'd come back from the Second World War, the post, the baby boom generation. And that was the government's role, was to have a high involvement in the economy, to help developers, to help, help councils, rework the land, build the roads, make sure that the houses were built. In fact, the government underwrote those houses and, and gave low interest rate loans to families to buy houses, capitalised family benefits so that they could buy houses and uh, and made sure that there was lots of low-cost housing for people, even if it was a, a rental in a state, a state house. That all changed, of course, post-1987 when the government stopped building new state houses, removed what was seen as subsidies for people to buy new houses. And but, through but, but Bernard, just, just, to, just to interrupt you slightly, there, yep. isn't that what the government's really doing now in a sense? I mean, it's obviously inflating the market through, the, through asset price inflation, but you know, you've, you've never had a higher level of government involvement in the economy than we have right now, have you? Nope. The government's share of GDP for income and spending is about 31%. In that period, through the 50s, 60s, 70s and into the early 80s, the share of government was closer to 50% because we had higher taxes and the government was involved in much larger sectors of the economy. Uh, and actually, despite the you know what feels like a lot of government involvement in the economy, a lot of that capacity to get involved, you know, the likes of the Ministry of Works and the way that the electricity departments were able to build dams at the drop of a hat, obviously the Think Big projects. The New Zealand government used to be a lot more involved and a lot more New Zealanders were employed by the government in all sorts of capacities. For those who are old enough to remember that fantastic uh, TV series Gliding On, you know, that was a real thing. For, for people who aren't from New Zealand, maybe on the call or on, listen to our podcast, this all sounds a bit socialist, doesn't it? Ah, well, that's what New Zealand was. And, you know, it meant we had a, a free healthcare system, so to speak. We still have that, pretty much. A free education system, which we still pretty much have. But what did change was that uh, the government pulled out of being involved in building new houses and ensuring that people could have affordable housing. Uh, and that was the the big change. Luckily, we didn't pull out completely out of healthcare and education. Otherwise, we'd have the healthscape that is America. Yeah. Bernard, I see Tim's come up too to have a chat. Ah, yes, Tim, go go for it with your question. You can, and luckily, you stopped me from rambling on about housing. Oh no! Unfortunately, <laughs> I also kind of have a good. question that relates to housing. I'm sorry. That's good. Go um, for it. Yeah. So I'm actually quite interested in what's going on with inflation at the moment. So I'm trying to buy my first house at the moment. So for me, like. It, 
all the money that I'm making is essentially going into my bank account to try and get enough money to buy a house, competing with the prices and inflating at the moment. And so I feel like my experience of inflation for the things that I'm trying to buy mm. is like radically different than the 2% or mm. less than 2% inflation rate that New Zealand is reporting at the moment. And kind of in relation to the rest of the world as well, because I know other countries are going through similar things with um, property price inflation. But what is kind of going on with inflation in general? And does it seem, are we heading towards a period of rapid inflation, potentially? At least temporarily, uh, there's going to be an increase in the inflation rate for goods and services prices, probably from around about 1.5% now to closer to 2.5% by the end of the year. But the Reserve Bank here and Reserve Banks around the world uh, think that that is a temporary thing, driven by the supply shortages, the problems with shipping stuff around the world and some commodity prices increasing. But we're yet to see the wage increases really start to take off. That's when you know that this inflation is going to stick, when people's wages really start to race away. And we're not seeing that here or in the rest of the world. There has been some pickup in wage inflation in places like America and in Europe, but not to the same extent we've seen with explosions of inflation in the 60s and 70s. That's partly because uh, unions are nowhere near as powerful as they were back then in terms of being able to demand big pay increases. And also, we have an app economy and a much freer movement of people and labour around the world, which keeps a downward pressure on wages. So my view is that it is a temporary spike in inflation for goods and services prices. But you're exactly right when you make the point that our experience of inflation, if we're looking to get into the housing market to buy an asset, a house, is quite different to someone who is already owning a house. When Mm. you look at the inflation rate for different types of people, i.e. you work out what sort of things they buy and what has changed for the prices for the things that they buy and use, the inflation rate for people who own their own home, particularly if they're a bit older, is actually half the inflation rate for people who are beneficiaries or renters in New Zealand. So over the last decade, prices have risen about 10% for people who are frankly wealthy and own a property in New Zealand. But prices for people who rent, and particularly for beneficiaries, uh, in part because uh, they have to use or uh, have have a higher purchase rate for things like alcohol um, and tobacco, which have uh, both seen prices increase dramatically in tobacco's case because of a big increase in taxes. Uh, you've seen inflation for and rents have risen faster than the general rise in prices. You've seen inflation rates of closer to 20%. So inflation for people who don't own property has actually been more like 20%. Yeah. But just 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 to just to ask you a question sort of from a global point of view there is there is disquiet in the US about the possibility of emerging inflation. Larry Summers and people like that have talked about the risk of inflation. If US inflation goes up then US interest rates will go up and the New Zealand dollar will fall, correct? Yeah, and that would in theory pump a bit more inflation into our economy. And actually when you mm-hmm. look, and I'll put this up into the the text version that goes out with this um, podcast, there is a great and very close relationship between New Zealand inflation rates and US inflation rates. We're part of the global economy. We have pretty open borders. So those prices do flow through to us. So you're right. If there is a permanent and very large increase in inflation that forces the US Federal Reserve and financial markets to put up interest rates very quickly and quite sharply, 
you know, up towards 3 4% from currently nearly naught. That will flow through to New Zealand. And the question is, what would it do to house prices? Now, I know a bunch of economists who think that that would really uh, put a dampener on New Zealand's housing market and you would see price falls. I don't think that. I must say I've turned into a bit of a cynic over the years about how markets are allowed to work or not allowed to work. In asset markets, if there's a risk of a complete collapse or some sort of apocalypse, central banks and governments have moved to change the rules effectively, Mm. uh, allowing central banks to print money, changing the rules to make sure that markets don't collapse. And in New Zealand, I mean, we saw this last year when the housing market, you know, could have collapsed when COVID hit. The Reserve Bank acted to slash interest rates, print money and remove restrictions on lending, which did the trick, all right. (laughs) And and what's what's your bet? Sorry, what's your bet about the probability, though, of a surge in US interest rates? I'm in the camp that says it's it's temporary, simply because mm-hmm. of the um, huge headwinds that come into the global economy from the appification of the global economy, i.e. Yeah. industries such as uh, financial services, medical services, educational services, which in the past have been immune from the sort of um, deflation that's hit the product sectors as China entered the global economy after its accession to the World Trade Organization over the last 20 years. It effectively dragged down the price of goods and mm. services. And, sorry, goods, goods that are manufactured in China and exported to the world. And that's why you can walk into any warehouse or Kmart or, or Walmart and see incredibly cheap things. Which I'm, is, I'm wearing, yeah, which for example, sorry. I'm, I'm wearing a pair of uh, reading glasses that I bought for $2.37 at Mitre 10 <laughs> over the weekend, which yeah. is just well, crazy. Is, we, we, your reading glasses are, and, my, and my various icebreaker outfits are a, another reason why I think we need to engage with China and not separate, mm-hmm. which brings us full circle back to China. Yes. Does that help, Tim? I hope that does. I mean, uh, Bernard's not advising you to buy a house, but he'd, he'd probably say fill your boots. I don't know. Yeah, I, I would say, Tim, that owning your own home, if you want to uh, live in it with um, your nearest and dearest, is always a good idea, regardless of the price. Um, None of it, neither of us are, are uh, financial qualified advisors. financial advisors, and you should, whatever we do, do the opposite, or certainly in my case. <laughs> yeah. No problem. Thank you very much. Thank so, so, so are you saying that the appification of the labour market is providing kind of like a downward pressure on inflation? Uh, Yeah, certainly on wage inflation. So just think of the way that you access movies, entertainment, music, taxis, hotels, travel, how that's changed over the last decade. You, I I guess, have a bunch of apps on your phone, just like this Clubhouse app, in which you're able to do things for virtually no cost or much lower costs than you used to um, do them 10 years or so ago. And that's really just scraping the surface of a part of the economy which until now has been immune from the downward draft of globalisation and effectively a productivity spike that or productivity shock that drags down on inflation. But we are now seeing a new era of the amplification of those services sectors. So think of education, think of financial services. At the moment, New Zealand, you know, we have these big four banks which dominate our financial uh, sector. But I, I'm pretty sure that over the next 10 years, that that money that we give to the banks and currently the banks' booking profits of around about $10 billion dollars 
chunk of that's going to be competed away by a bunch of apps able to offer us financial services at much cheaper prices. So that's one example. The other one is medical services. I think you're going to see a lot of apps and devices and sensors that um, you use to monitor your health and you know, you've seen a lot of new new things accelerated during COVID where people were able to access things remotely, which they, they never thought they could from New Zealand. And, you know, the, the, the Uber example is just an amazing example of how an area, taxis, you know, four rubber wheels and a, and a car that you could never think could be disrupted by the internet was. And these devices we have in our, our hands, Android or Apple, are the true sort of revolution that really kicked in from about 2008-9 when we started to see not just these smartphones being rolled out and updated but the the data networks, the 4G networks that meant that the combination of the apps plus the phones, the usability of those, the decent data connections and the availability of apps has um, allowed people and businesses to flourish and use those these tools to do things they, they never thought they could and basically kill off entire industries and jobs. But one thing it does do is that it, it completely pushes down on wages because a service that's provided by an app and, a, and an algorithm and a, uh, a piece of software rather than a person and, and all sorts of all the, all the services around that is way cheaper. So that's that's... That's my underlying thesis on why this is a temporary inflation hit. You've got to remember that services make up now more than 60% of our economy. So even though we may, we may see you know, the, the, the rates for shipping containers from China to New Zealand treble or quadruple, even though we may see you know, the price of gold or coal or whatever go up, when you look at what people actually spend their money on, mostly it's on services. And in New Zealand, that's on housing, education, medical services. And, you know, we've had 10 years of, of subpar inflation. And in my view, I think the Reserve Bank should allow inflation to run a bit hotter than it has in the past, if only to average out that below-par inflation we've had for the last decade, and then um, look to put up interest rates later on. But, uh, you know, hey... Lots of economists have been wrong about inflation in the past. Maybe this time is different. The, the four most dangerous words in the world of financial markets and different. economics. That's right. Yeah. Would anybody else like to ask any, anything before Bernard and I sign off? But thank you so much, everybody, for coming on to this so far. Oh, Manuel has a question. Let me just invite to speak. Great, we've sent them an invite. Cool, can you guys hear me? Yes, we yes, can. Manuel, how are you? Good, thank you. Hey, brilliant discussion. Thanks for hosting it. A view on China, I guess, you know, you spoke about the context around Tiananmen Square. And at that moment in history, I guess the bet from the West was if you engaged with China in a, you know, in, in a meaningfully liberal and open manner, it would open its economy and reap the benefits of you know a free market and then that would eventually lead to a liberalization that was political as well as as you know that society learned that western decadence actually had some upsides that maybe they wanted to be part of and so and so that paradigm determined the engagement what actually happened was on the economic front china's been fairly predatory in its practices and and stolen everyone's technology 
and on the political front, it's actually gone the other way. That's so right. the deal essentially is no longer on. So, so when you sit here today, what are the paths specifically for New Zealand, given our unique situation? What are the potential paths forward in your in your mind? And I'm not asking you to pick one. I'm just looking for some different yeah, worlds that might emerge. Thanks. No, I, I think you're absolutely right, Manuel. And, and I, I tend to be slightly Bill Clintonish, which it means that my head is slightly stuck in 1993 when there was that real push to engage with China. I, I just tend to feel that there is no other way than to have effective engagement with China. It, it is extremely difficult to engage with the Chinese Communist Party. And I think New Zealand is trying to do it intelligently. I think it is less bellicose than Australia and it isn't quite as beholden to the US and to that, and to that sort of tub thumping that you saw under the Trump era. But I think there are going to be some difficult, difficult situations. I mean, New Zealand was one of the first countries to establish an, an embassy in Beijing just after the United States recognized China in 1972. I think New Zealand has an interesting role to play as an honest broker in this. That might be to overstate it slightly, but I don't see how New Zealand in this part of the world can afford to not to be engaged with China. Bernard? Yeah, well, one of the ways it could uh, be an honest broker is in uh, connecting together America and China on trade. Remember, New Zealand is the keeper of the papers for the CPTPP, so it, it, it monitors and arranges for people to come in and go out. Uh, China has actually been in recent months quietly checking, hey, could we join this CPTPP thing? And the Americans who were supposed to be in it to start with, but Trump pulled out, Biden is apparently sort of interested, maybe we could join it and push out the Chinese. And that gives New Zealand a little bit of leverage, A, to maybe try and get a trade deal with America, which was the last one we don't have, but also, you know, being, an, as, as Peter says, an honest broker and pulling people together. Hey, I'm really can sorry. I, can I, sorry, can I just ask you guys, just what is the, the paradigm of the relationship? Do you still think it's one where... We, you know, when I say we, I mean everyone who wants to participate in an open economy and open society. Are we still trying through positive engagement and taking the first step now, 30 years later? Are we still trying to to do that, to persuade the CCP that, that you know, yeah, they need I to evolve? You, yeah, I think, Manuel, and Bernard has to go. So let me, let me, Bernard's going to sign off and I'll, I'll finish this if you do. Yeah, don't cool. Mind. Thanks, Bernard. Yeah, um, yeah. In my opinion, everything you see about Xi Jinping suggests that there will be no relaxation in China. There will be no change in China's approach. You might find that China is a little bit less bellicose internationally, but China is going to China under Xi is going to keep doing what the CCP feels it needs to do. You know, he's eliminated all opposition. He's going to keep going. So anyway, thank you very much. We need thanks, to, guys. We need to sign off. Thank you, Manuel. Thank you. Thanks, uh, Jonathan, Tim, Rick, Sunny, and Laurel. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much. That was Peter Bale. I'm Bernard Hickey. That was New Zealand over the horizon on the Kaka. Great to hear you. And three o'clock next week, we'll be back.